This is Pamela Kuhn, and you're listening to Center Stage, the show about the arts and the artists behind their work. For those who listen regularly to my show, you will recognize that my broadcasts of Benjamin Franklin dinners have become a regular feature of my season. Taking a cue from Mr. Franklin and his Friday night regular discussions over dinner with his followers, I love the idea of a roundtable discussion using his 13 virtues as a template. These dinners promote the healthy art of conversation and community building, two subjects that I am passionate about. On a recent trip to London, I gathered together the following enjoyable group of players for one of my dinners. Ollie Gibbs, bass baritone with the chorus of the Royal Opera House, Portuguese tenor Alberto Souza, American-born mezzo-soprano and actor Liza Graham, who, I might add, graciously opened her home for this dinner. British soprano Catherine Rogers Woodward, conductor and artistic director of Fulham Opera Ben Woodward, pianist and artistic director of the London Song Festival Nigel Foster, and finally clergyman and vicar of St. John's Church Fulham Father Mark Osborne. What ensued that night was a thoroughly enjoyable evening laced with humor, clever insight, and honesty as only the British can produce. Now, pardon the sound of clinking silverware, for this is a dinner party. And it's interesting that even though I request that no one use their hands to speak with by adding percussion on the dinner table, it is something that is almost impossible for people to avoid. So, folks, hold on to your hats and away we go. All right, everyone, welcome to our Ben Franklin dinner in London. Isn't this marvelous? So, let's all have a little toast to each other. For daring to bring your ideas to the table. So, you ready for the first question? Let's go. Since we have so many artists at the table, I thought it might be kind of interesting to talk about, for instance, when we want to go right, maybe we go left. So, what part does silence play in all of your artistic endeavors? especially you as musicians. How does silence, or the art of silence, come into what you do? I think part of one of the great art, uh, part of the art of singing is the use of silence in our singing. Um, and it, uh, it has, I feel, has the ability, a clever use of a pause, slightly longer than usual, has mm-hmm. the ability to bring in the audience and catch their attention. So it is possible to catch a, uh, uh, an audience attention through the use of silence and not so much the use of the noise that we produce. I think it's, it's an interesting way of bringing attention in. And in that attention, is there energy? Is there energy in silence? Well, there's tension. Tension. Yeah, tension. <laughs> You've said an important thing. 
those of us who sing and also those of us who act, uh, singers, of course, are also actors, but uh, those of us who act with spoken text, a silence is a place of infinite potential for anything else to be said or to happen. When you... A lot of the uh, acting work I do involves Shakespeare. And there's a tendency to do Shakespeare as though it were all predetermined, which, of course, every play is. You have your entire script. It's, But you also, in the moment, you have to be able to act, or indeed to sing, as though anything might happen next. Yes. And pauses can be very fertile in welcoming. <laughs> fertile, in terms of, fertile in terms of potential. Yes. Yeah. Obviously, the suspense of what might happen next. Mm-hmm. How will somebody react? Mm-hmm. Will it be anger? Will it be pleasure? Will it be agreement? Will it be disagreement? Will it be... Will it be the instruction to actually play the piano? There you go. (laughs) (laughs) And the conductor has spoken. It's like, like, okay, it's now time to sing. Um, Because, of course, as the scriptures say, the Lord God was not found in the earthquake. He was not found in the fire. He was found in the silence. Oh, the Lord God. Oh, the Lord God. He's already brought religion. The vicar has brought religion. This is valid. And I think, and I think, therefore, that um, so um, apophaticism, the the the, the, uh, the science in, in theological terms of, of not knowing, is what silence is about. And actually, creativity happens when you let creativity happen, rather than when you impose upon creativity. And it's that tension, isn't it, between your skill, your your work, and that the spirit of genius that takes over. Mm. You know, whether it ta- whether it's the, whether it's the singer that, that performs their best work in the uh, at the garden, or whether it's um, in the Met, but somehow they are at one with the audience in that environment, mm. and all of a sudden their voices. Ten times, a hundred times better than it, it's ever, ever anywhere else mm-hmm. on the planet. In that place, the tension between place and person and practice and and the art, uh, and it's unknowable. It is apophatic. Well, there you are. I'm winning at Scrabble so far. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's there's interesting research that I was reading just the other day that. Um, they found they were using exposing is not quite the right word, but they were using as a as a uh, what, what's the f- word for it as a control on a, an experiment with mice looking at their brain development, and the control was that they had two hours of silence, and actually they discovered that the mice's brains were growing in the silence. Ah, that's yeah. right. on Facebook. That's right. The yeah. importance of silence. Yeah. Yeah. So that, but um, the flip side of that for me is, uh, I had a late teenage obsession with the work of John Cage, and learnt to appreciate that it's never silent. I mean, you know, we call what you call silence is never completely silence. And I was lucky enough just once, like him, to go into an anechoic chamber, which is always an interesting experience because that is the closest we get to an absence of sound um, and of course then you start hearing your own body in a different way and you realise that just the sound of your blood moving around your body 
is there. When you, once you remove all other sound, it's never quite silent. That's true. That's a good point. That's a and, very good point. And people can't cope for more than 20 minutes, can they? No, it's a very but strange situation to hear. Too much silence and human beings break down. But when, but when we're working as artists, and you're working all day, you know, let's say, like most of us have been doing today, mm. I feel the need sometimes to, afterwards, to just shut myself away for at least 20 minutes and be completely silent. Yes. Um, I have to come to a place just with my energy level where I can kind of re recoup my thoughts. I is this valid? Yeah, my husband knows that. When I've stopped listening, <laughs> well, yeah. I have just completely. I'm not necessarily in a silent place, but I have gone to a silent place in my own head. <laughs> I thought that was just a response to, "Can you please do the laundry?" <laughs> exactly. Standard response. Ollie, where where do you stand in all of mm. this? But what what Liza said actually, but it's the thing that triggered off immediately when he said about the silence. And of course, there's uh, five singers around this table who've all sung in operas and performed, and there's other people who are one, two, three, yeah, one, two five singers. singers yeah, um, right. and um, because you simply can't bring yourself to think of me as a singer. I've, I've heard it, and we can, we can pass over that and back to the matter in hand. Um, and that thing about because being singers, of course. Uh, even more, far more, than a written text, as Lyle has explained, she's put in both camps, and uh, it, so, you know, she's to do with interpreting written text as well as musical text. Um, and there's an awful lot more leeway, obviously, in the written text. Yes. Because, and I, I've explained this, I've tried to explain this to people for, who are not performing artists, who are singers, specifically singers, that when you go into an audition, which we all have to do very regularly to try and get some more work there's that terrible thing where, and forgive me if I tap the table at this point, where <laughs> the metronome effectively, the music goes on and you have to be with music, very occasionally it comes to a pause and you can sort of, that pause you can pull out for a bit of dramatic effect but there's also the fact that silence sometimes between the notes, between the phrases you can just manipulate just a tiny amount to make what you're, the text that you're purveying through the music even more meaningful or, as you understand it, than it would otherwise be by just clini clinically following what is there on the page in, in, in the written music. When Liza was talking about silences in, in text, in, in written and spoken theatre, it's, yeah, the, the cliche we always come up with, the first the, the sort of knee-jerk reaction is always, oh, Pinter, because mm -hmm. it's all about the pauses and the silences. But what you said about Shakespeare, of course, it's like Pinter is just kind of uh, sort of deconstructing that. He's sort of showing you this is how, this is how all theatre can be, or if you want to. You can use pauses anywhere because there is no written beats with the music underneath it. There is the fact that within the constraints of what particular metre in verse in Shakespeare or any other thing that's written, there is not a sort of an unending stop of music that you have to obey. You can... And nothing I've tried to explain, but it's to other people who outside the business of performing is that when actors sit down with the director at the beginning of a rehearsal process in what we call straight or spoken theatre, 
if you have the luxury of being paid for a six-week rehearsal process, which is pretty rare, but when you do, you can happily spend the first week or two weeks just sitting around a table very much like this, with everybody in the text and their parts, and effectively writing your own music with your own pauses and your own silences. But as a group, when I say your, because you, you kind of work it out for yourselves. This is how we're, as an organic group, going to present this piece. Very interesting. I like that. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, Nigel and I probably play hundreds of auditions as well mm. and it's actually the singers who can best manipulate say, the in-breath, the silence mm. the, the moment before, that make our job the easiest Yeah, I find mm. <laughs> it's like, if you actually give me a Alberto is actually one of the best at this um, oh wow <laughs> it's like that in-breath of that's my tempo. And the, it's like, yeah. and, <laughs> and, and you will follow it. Um, and that is so vital. That's it's so vital. So vital. Yeah. Uh, I think, yeah. Go on. How the characteristic of somebody who is maybe young and inexperienced is that they're really frightened of silence. Yes. Mm. I think maybe a mark of a great yeah. experience, whatever mm-hmm. word you like, seeing where somebody or violinist or clarinetist or pianist or anything is somebody who knows how to use silence exactly yes. and I think the more experienced artist is able to take risks in that yeah, way yeah, and of yeah. course be themselves in their own essence of the interpretation mm-hmm. in moment, great moments of silence mm-hmm. yeah. that's because gratifying a, the silence is always a point of tension a point of emotion as always it's, it's a never a stop is it it's never and then something else. It's if you're thinking through the phrases, it has something a potential. Yeah, yeah. There's an inevitability to. Yeah, mm. yeah. One, Which can be expanded. One of my favourite uses of silent and soft singing uh, was uh, Diana Damhau singing the madness scene in Lucia. Um, and uh, it, it was striking how soft she could sing in that house. True, it was her cadenza, there was nothing beneath her, so she could go as soft as she wanted. But she had the courage to go very soft, and she had the courage to just stop. And have, like, how, how many people in the Royal Opera House? About 2,000... 2,000 or something, yeah. Yep, just waiting for her to mm-hmm. resume singing. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that was a moment of delicious tension, in which an artist can hold... You know the breath exactly. of two thousand people. Yeah. It's quite extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And that can also happen at the end of a performance. I heard. A I was going to say that. Yes. Have I heard of improviser mm. with? Um... Oops, sorry. Don't tap the table. It was um, Krustoff, Ooh. and at the end oh, of Lion Man, <clears throat> he just stood there, and it must have been for about fifteen seconds or something. Not a soul in the Whitmore Hall breathed. It was it was extraordinary. Oh, yeah, that's, we had a terrific, well, an utterly awful moment during a bohem. It was the one you didn't sing, actually, Kat. Um, and we got to the end of bohem, and the idea was that the the lights wouldn't either dim or come back on until a lot of applause had happened. <laughs> And the um, and Mimi died, and it was you know terrible in C sharp. Spoiler alert! Yeah, spoiler alert! Yeah. She died. Terrible in C sharp. Oh yeah, you've ruined this for so many people now. 
Anyone who hasn't seen the opera, don't forgive Ben. She died on C Sharp. When you hear C Sharp, she's dead. That was great, actually. That was really great. Back to me. (laughs) So... The lighting director, whose job it was, obviously, to turn the lights... I forget whether it was up or down, because you're in twilight and she's about to die. The lighting director, everything was so still. And he just couldn't leave it there. And he moved the lights at that final moment, after about five minutes, five seconds, instead of... It could have gone on for a 15-second silence of that extraordinary... She's dead, Jim. Um, (laughs) And... um, (laughs) Is that a reference to Star Trek? I think it might be. Um, I think this is why we know that Ben should never direct an opera. (laughs) I wave a stick and you shall follow. Um, And the the terrible thing was, when the lighting director um, did his thing and actually moved the lights before the applause had started... The director who was sitting in the room, he was so tense, it was, he was holding on with... And this was in the middle of a performance, and he actually blurted out at the lighting director, No! Don't do the lights! <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was that dramatic, as I throw my plate across him. And, and it was just this remarkable moment where, you know, life met reality, or you know, theatre met reality as... As the lights were, the lighting director got it in the neck very, very publicly. It was, uh, it was utterly terrible, morti- mortifying. <laughs> but, but it was a great example of how silence can be. You know, we, it was an incredible moment of tension, and uh, and the lighting director ruined it. And then the director blurted out. <laughs> I rather suspect Alberto heard about it afterwards. I, I heard, I heard all about it. So do we all wait for those moments, you know, as like a bonus, or more than the music itself at times? Yeah. I mean, I feel rewarded if there's an incredible performance where everyone's breath is held at the end. And, it, and you know that's a moment that won't happen again for a long, long time. It's a, um, short, it's a short sign of when what you've been... Tra- you and everybody who was working with you has been put on this, this thing that's called this show, whatever mm-hmm. it is, mm-hmm. has worked. Mm-hmm. And it, I think that the, uh, the moment I'm, I'm doing a lot of work at the opera house in the chorus, so of course I get to sort of hear, hear lots of you know responses, audience responses. And it's very interesting to hear that on different nights and in different performances, we think, well, okay, maybe there are just more people with heavy colds in tonight. Mm-hmm. But you just—it's quite interesting that when I think that when people are more engrossed. They forget about their ailments and end up coughing less. Yeah. Now that is truly interesting. <laughs> wow. Huh. Scientifically, can you explain it? I don't know. I don't think you can. But it's a, it's a more it's an observational thing that like okay that when these guys so for instance uh, uh, you were saying about Diana Damrau and uh, earlier this season as uh, Lisette Olapesa was singing Lucia at Congo mm-hmm. mm-hmm. spectacularly well. I mean, just breathtaking. Mm-hmm. And in the same bit in the magazine, yes. it's just like other bits earlier in the evening, you heard, heard the old cough. She had them in such in the palm of her hand that the cough just went away. And that's a long scene. The cough just went away entirely. And she was singing it like, I don't know, 78 pianissimi. It was just tiny silver oh, threads amazing. of sound. Mm-hmm. And, even, and then even in the silences, which, what's what we're talking about, mm-hmm. nothing. 
because the audience was just going, they were being I'll cough in a minute, yeah. I feel terrible, yeah, but I'll cough in a minute. Yeah. Or, I don't know if they'd been thinking that, but that's, you get the feeling that's what was happening. And, you know, I can recall a wonderful performance with the New York Philharmonic, very romantic, Kurt Mazur conducting, and they did the, the uh, prelude to Tristan and Isolde. And everybody in the audience had been coughing all night. The man sitting next to me was eventually leaning on me and falling asleep on my shoulder. It was unbelievable. People were talking. It was unbelievable. So they start the prelude. It's so quiet. It's so divine. Cough, cough, talk, talk. Kurt Mazur does this the orchestra, turns around to the audience and says, my dear friends, this music is magic. How can you be making noise in the audience? How is this possible? And you should have seen that place. It was like children being scolded in school. I've never seen anything. The guy sitting next to me even woke up. It was amazing. <laughs> anyway, everybody, and then he just turned, and they started again. And the looks on the players' faces, I mean, really, I don't think that had happened very often. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was interesting. The place was silent for the piece, thank God. So when, when you guys are done working, when you're done, uh, you know, finding your own sense of silence, does the music turn off in your heads? Never. Never. <laughs> I've just been, I've just done a contract in Germany for three months. And I, I'm not going to mention what the piece is. Everyone around this table knows what the piece was I was doing. Oh, it was a, um, shall we say it was a passion play with a musical bent. And... Um, <laughs> I mean, there were levels in which I quite enjoyed it, actually. The, the people singing it were really giving it the full beans. It was, say, musical theatre. They were really going for it. Um, but I actually, getting home, lying in bed, and the whole piece, sort of in this weird loop of... Just going around your head the whole night. And it just... Because it's not that great music, which is why I'm not mentioning what it was, because <laughs> <laughs> it's not that good music, it was infuriating. And I went into the office the following day, I had reason to go and you know, sort something out to the office. And the lady was like, you look like you haven't slept. And I was like, <laughs> because I couldn't sleep, because I've been doing eight hours of this particular, absolutely not an opera piece. Just partly the... Had the adrenaline after a performance, you could never sleep after. Yeah, that's right. If that had been Wagner, if that had been Wagner, then that's it. But the strange thing is, if it's music which I really love and I Mm. really, then I don't really mind it going around my head Mm. in that kind of way. Um, And if you know, if those kind of things tonight, it will be something from somebody singing that. Perhaps the the Tosca we did, (laughs) and I'm quite happy with you know Tosca rolling across my brain and and lulling me to sleep. But it is exhausting if you can't sleep on the energy of the music that's been made and and, and stays as an earworm. Um, Father Mark, how how does this work with you? uh, That was that was really interesting because for me, because um, uh, if you read. John Osborne's Martin Luther, you know, playing Luther, then um, you get an insight into the way in which contemporary society sees uh, religion and spirituality as an obsession, bad for digestion, destructive of real humanity, and yet actually it's exactly the same for me. So I go on a pastoral visit and that, that will play through my head 
mm-hmm. uh, and I'm, have, you know, uh, because I'm a member of the society as well as uh, a priest, I'm thinking, I'm going mad here. <laughs> How am I supposed to? Surely I should be healthy and put it to one side. And you can't because that, mm-hmm. that music is playing across you or those dissonances are um, um, splitting your skull, really. Um, and it's about, yeah, so h- how, um, how, how do you find a way of, of, of refining the silence? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's more silence, and, but the further you go into the silence, the louder the echoes become. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's the, the paradox of it. This, this is quite interesting. <coughs> the, uh, there is in, in London a charter house which uh, is um, today filled with um, elderly people, um, yeah. almost entirely men, actually, but elderly people. Uh, but it was then uh, it, originally a, um, a, a monastic community. It was the only monastic community at the time of the Reformation with a waiting list, people wanting to get in. Thomas More. Um, the Chancellor, Lord Chancellor, and tried to become a monk at Charterhouse. But if you become, if you if you try your vocation at Charterhouse, um, where you will uh, be given a cell with a bedroom and um, a room and a small garden, uh, a washroom, uh, and you will only attend the midnight service in church. Uh, you do, uh, and the Eucharist, the day hours, the six hours during the day, you uh, the five hours during the day. Morning prayer, evening prayer, and uh, and the Eucharist. Everything else you say yourself, and of course it's all in silence. You go for a walk on Sundays with everybody else, but it's all in silence. Mm. Uh, and um, if you try your vocation there, people usually last for six weeks, and then the novice master looks in. And if you've chewed, chewed your nails down to the quick, <laughs> you've pulled your beard out. It's time to let you out. Yeah, mm. because yeah. people can't cope. They can't cope with that amount of silence. It's like the novice in a much more relaxed monastery who was caught by the novice master with his earbuds in, hoeing um, uh, during great, you know, during the, the morning silence. And the ma- novice master said, oh, "We're supposed to be letting God into this silence." And he said, "Well, I, I, but I am. I'm listening to Plenchot song on my, uh, on my, uh, uh, no, no, silence means silence." We were um, at Ben's birthday lunch. And they turned the music on. I got—I have no idea what it was, but it was just like like somebody beating on a big bass drum. It's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know what it was. I mean, there was there was no there was no tune to it at all. So um, so I asked them to be turned off. Uh, and all that happened in this pub, filled with people having lovely family lunches, was that they stopped shouting at one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Oh, well, that's the noise. Which is the worst. You're actually not being able to attend mm-hmm. to one another. So I, I, I mean, it's but for me, so I suppose it, it's interesting to hear that that you've got that noise going constantly on because I think wherever it is that you engage mm-hmm. um, with with your fellows, that will be constantly playing, and it's about finding that the appropriate balance, that the creative tension between the noise of whatever it is you do and the silence where you can find recreation. I hope you will join us for part two of the group that trusted the process and raised the art of conversation to a level that Ben Franklin would have been proud of. Part two airs next Tuesday at 9 a.m. This is Pamela Kuhn, and the curtain is now down on Center Stage. I must go down to the seas again, to the lonely sea and the sky.
And all I ask is a tall ship and a star to steer her by. And the wheels kick and the wind song and the white sail shaking and the gray. 